Hello, everybody! Turn this up in my headphones, Charles. Turning it up. Hello, 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 everybody, one and all. Welcome back to yet another very exciting episode of the Friends Talking Fantasy Podcast. My name is Charles, and with me today, as always, is my lifelong friend and co-host, Dylan. I'm ready to talk some fantasy with my friend, Charles. I am ready to talk some fantasy with my friend as well, Dylan, and not just any fantasy today. Because today we are discussing a book that I've been looking forward to Ever since we started the podcast, this has been a book that has been on my TBR shortlist for well over a year, even longer, I guess a couple of years now. And Is that a, still a shortlist then? <laughs> <laughs> if it takes you over a year to get to it? Yes, it is a short list, but you know, it's, it depends. You, it's all relative, uh, but I've been saving it to, to read for the show and, and get... Um, get to talk about it on the air, and that day has finally come today. I'm, of course, referring to The Fifth Season by N.K. Jemisin, book one of the Broken Earth series. Yeah, this one has quickly become a classic of modern fantasy. For sure. It's the winner of three consecutive Hugo Awards, Mm. and it's a truly phenomenal book. We'll get into all the accolades. Uh, yeah, I know you have a whole list of them. Uh, we could probably go through all the accolades and spend an hour doing that. But we'll, <laughs> exactly. we'll give you the I have to get a highlights here. of uh, um, N.K. Jemisin's accomplishments and achievements because to yeah. go through the full list would uh, take up the whole podcast. There's so much to talk about with right. her career. Um, did, did I say three that this book won three You did, but we I all mean, know what series, you meant the that the series Broken did. Earth Trilogy yes, won yes. three consecutive. This one only won one Best Novel Hugo Award because each book is only capable of winning one of those. Yes, it would I'm be sh- even more <laughs> impressive maybe if this book just won it. Exactly. <laughs> just won. It's just like, you know, I give it to give it to fifth season again. That was a good one. That was a classic. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. And you know, we've been talking about this book for a long time. It gets recommended a lot. Every time I'm in a bookstore, even when the fantasy section is measly and thin, fifth season is always proudly on display. And I've always wanted to figure out why. I mean, everyone sweeps the Hugos. N.K. Jemison, celebrated author. This book is everywhere on everyone's book club list. Kind of transcended the genre a little bit and got us a, a mass appeal. And I've just been super excited to, to experience for myself uh, why this book is so celebrated. And I'm super excited to get into that discussion today because there's a lot of really fascinating things going on in this book that I cannot wait to get into. Before we do that, though, as Dylan had mentioned, there was some information about N.K. Jemison that I want to get into very quickly just because I find her to be a super fascinating individual um she had first of all she attended tulane university which is where i also mm-hmm. attended so we have some common ground there and she also and she received it was a bachelor's in psychology which kind of mirrors mm-hmm. a little bit of you doing right well yeah she has a lot of background that mirrors 
mine in some ways. I uh, She went on to study counseling, earned her master's in education from the University of Maryland, and I'm getting my PhD in counseling psychology right now. Uh, she ended up working in the counseling psychology field, and she was a career counselor, which I've also been a career counselor <laughs> at times. So yeah, then she went into writing full-time after that, and I, yeah, I think it's really awesome to be covering someone who has this psychology background. It totally <laughs> shows in her character writing. The characters are so complex and interesting and well-rounded, too. There's so much depth and stuff going yeah, on. Yeah, what is it about uh, psychology majors that make such good fantasy authors? Our friend Joe Abercrombie is a psychology background as well. I guess that deep understanding of, of characterization is is what helps them succeed, you know? And being able to get into the minds of their characters. For sure. And that definitely shows with both of those awesome authors and psychology uh, graduates. For sure. And what's interesting about Jemison is, you know, she was writing for the New York Times. Uh, I, I, you know, she submitted stuff, but I think she had a column, a biweekly column in the New York Times. And she mounted a Patreon campaign, according to her bio, which like helped her pursue writing full time. And then her novel, The Fifth Season, was published in 2015. And it won the Hugo Award for Best Novel. What's interesting about this, though, is it makes Jemison the first black author to win a Hugo Award. And I had to, like, in that category, in the best um, novel category. And I had to do a double take on that. I was like, is that really true? And sure enough, it's true. But the accolades don't end there because... The other books in the trilogy, The Obelisgate and The Stone Sky, also won the Hugo Award for Best Novels in 2017 and 2018, respectively, which makes Jemison the first author of all time to win the Hugo Award for the Best Novel in three consecutive years, as well as the first to win for all three novels in a trilogy. She swept the Hugos. Yeah, and I've read the whole series, so I can tell you that all those are extremely well deserved this is one of those rare series we're only going to cover the fifth season in this episode so you don't have to worry about spoilers beyond that Mm -hmm. but this is a rare series that keeps up the quality throughout and i i don't know it's one of those where i'm not even sure which one is my favorite book it might even be the the last one of the three so Mm -hmm. it's uh yeah, uh, I think there's a lot of series that start off strong and then they start to wane once you get past that original concept. Mm-hmm. This one is extremely impressive throughout, and I'm just so happy that we're finally getting to discuss this on the podcast. I've been uh, chomping at the bit for <laughs> a while now. <laughs> I know, this is an exciting moment for me too, and I have so much to say, but before we get into... All of these delicious spoilers. Dylan, let's go ahead and give one of your famous spoiler warnings. Just before you do, all I'm going to say is if you haven't read the book, um, check it out. If you're a fantasy fan and you haven't read this, put it on your TBR list. Read it as soon as you can because it is worth it. It's very, very good. 
Yeah, if the if the three consecutive Hugos wasn't <laughs> enough to get you to start this series, you now have Charles and <laughs> me telling you to start it. So. <laughs> well said. All right, yes. The, the spoiler warning is that we're going to be getting into the fifth season with no holds barred. Mm-hmm. So that means if you haven't yet read this book, it's a good time to turn this down in your headphones and, uh, you know, come back to us when you've finished the book. Uh, we will not be getting into any spoilers beyond the fifth season in this series, uh, especially because Charles hasn't read those books, so... You can trust me that I won't go past this one. But yeah, let's uh, let's get into it, Charles. No further ado. Let's get into it. The fifth season. Uh, fast, like to me, what kicked off this whole like it starts very strong. It's got a very famous opening line. Uh, Dylan, what do you think? Should we should we just go ahead and start with yeah. the opening line? <laughs> <laughs> let's start with the end of the world why don't we <laughs> that's how it starts so uh, first line let's start with the end of the world why don't we get it over with and move on to more interesting things mm. so absolutely love this quote it grabs you so quick because i mean how many fancy novels have we read charles mm. where what is on the line is the end of the world, right? That's, right. I feel like, the most typical stakes of an epic fantasy novel. Right. And here, we really early on get Jemison doing what she does really well, which is take the genre in a very different direction mm-hmm. and subvert some expectations mm-hmm. that we have with a fantasy book like this. So she begins with the end of the world instead of <laughs> having it be something that hangs over our heads uh, for the whole series yeah. and she's and i love like, the phrasing. just get that yeah. part out of the way. i love the yeah. phrase and get it out of the way because sometimes it's true you're trying to fit to these archetypes of a story and it's like let's just okay the world ends let's acknowledge that and let's get into what's happening with these characters right now and there's so much like about this is not the shy year where it's all happy and then the dangers looming off in the horizon right and and the dark lord's growing in power and you have to face him and face that big battle this is totally different this is okay the world ends and let's move on this the setting is of course the super continent called the stillness and every i guess it's every few centuries um there's a fifth season which is basically a um a calamity a natural disaster that kind of wipes humanity out it's this kind of end of the world um phrasing but then i think there's also hints that there's a really bad one coming this time around right so um that's the the setting that we're in yeah and it's it's a rare series that gets me really enthralled by the world building, mm-hmm. but this is one of those series. Mm-hmm. I'm a huge character guy, and obviously there's tons in this book that you can Tons, but also not as many as you think. But, <laughs> right. Th- yes. I mean, we'll get into that, which is one of my favorite twists in the fantasy genre right. ever, which is the point of view like where they all end up being the same person Mm. um we'll get into that in more detail but uh, yes there are less characters than you might think you might think of this as a multiple point of view book but uh uh, it's up for debate whether or not that's true Mm -hmm. but 
Anyway, yeah, we start with this idea of this continent called the Stillness, which feels ironically named because <laughs> of the massive natural disasters <laughs> that involve like earthquakes and anything stuff but still. that happen in the Stillness. Exactly. So, and pretty early on, we get uh, we we learn by the end of the book that it's Hoa, uh, the stone eater, that's narrating this book. But we get him kind of going into some of uh, what the stillness is like, and we also get him kind of breaking down some of the the structures of it. It's really interesting. It almost has that like campfire storytelling feel to the start of it before we really dive into Esun as a character. Well said, and. You know, the world building goes just beyond the setting. You have a, a kind of, I think it's a, it's a, it's a very unique magic system um, mm-hmm. with the orogenies, um, the name of the system. Origins. Origins. Oh, that's right. That's right. Uh, you were listening to the audiobook, so you've, you've got the pronunciations for me. Yeah. <laughs> erogenies. <laughs> um, I see. Uh, you, you pronounce that in your head as erogenies the whole time? Yeah, I mean, I'm just like pronouncing it phonetically. Glass-shattering like. moment. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, That's all right. I there's a there's an Italian restaurant near me called Oregano's, <laughs> and I was looking up I was on Yelp. I was looking up uh, like places to go, and I was like, "Ooh, four stars for uh, Oregano's," <laughs> and I. <laughs> I was so embarrassed I wanted to die. So, yes. And now you've shared it with everyone. Yes. Now all the people listening here know about my huge mistake. But Charles, I did that to join you. I used my psychology background here to show empathy. And uh, we appreciate that. we'll move past this now and we'll call them origins. <laughs> origins. And what's very unique about the origins is that on one hand, they wield a tremendous amount of power being able to control the shakes of the earth and the energy of the earth. And I, I forget the name of the actual, what they call the science of their magic system. It's not seismology, but it's a play on that word that I'm currently forgetting. But um it's this idea that they can quell shakes in the earth or cause shakes in the earth. And um, it makes them incredibly powerful, but it also makes them a subclass in society. The um, the people that be, the powers that be, are trying to control them. And the way they say it is, oh, if you're untrained, you could potentially wipe out a whole city or a whole continent. So we need to train you and put you in school and and keep you controlled uh, this whole time. And it's that unique balance that helps solidify one of the main themes of this book, which is oppression. And I think the idea of having a class of, you know, of ethnicity or a kind of person that is so powerful yet also so oppressed has an interesting duology to it that permeates through the whole book. Yeah. So the fact that they are so powerful is why they're oppressed, which right. is an interesting theme throughout this. And we have people who are tasked with keeping the uh, origins under control, the guardians who are, we also find out are, are children of origins. Mm-hmm. And we also find out that the origins themselves are not considered human even though they obviously are human. <laughs> right. It's, it, yeah, and it's a really interesting um, 
way that she goes about that, where the reason they're not considered human is traced back to some, like, decree that was made by a council of sorts. I know it's uh, the kind of thing, it reminds you of parallels to things like the Three-Fifths Compromise here in the United States (laughs) that just legally call people who are obviously human not in in that case uh, uh not fully human but also in the case of the fifth season not human at all um and it's such a an interesting i guess parallel that she's able to do throughout this novel is this book has a lot of implications for the real world but it can also work extremely well as uh fantasy novel and those are some of the best books out there that's well said and and that is persona that is explained right away when we kick off with a story i'm pronouncing that correctly dylan yeah a soon uh, i think it's mm, that's close yeah um so a is a middle-aged woman with two young children and it starts with one of the children she discovers was beaten to death by her husband when the husband yeah. found out that this child uh, could was an orogeny, um, uh, an origin, origin, origin. dang, I gotta, I gotta get that in my mind, is an origin, <laughs> and um, that kicks off it's just the fact that this child exists and is capable of doing this. You could do something so horrible as, as kill your own child, which is an interesting parallel to what happens later in the book. By the way, just gonna say uh, the fact that. Um, this killing of, of of children but uh yeah asun right off the bat mm-hmm. and what's also interesting about her is her her pov her of the narration of her character this you're talking about the second person mm-hmm. narration i assume that this starts with the literally using you <laughs> the only other time i can think of that i've read a book that used you mm-hmm. was we're going back to <laughs> The Goosebumps Choose Your Own Adventure. Books. Oh, okay. Uh, that's, yeah, you ever read those? <laughs> yeah, journals? yeah, yeah. I was like, what book was he Where reading that was to... second person? And I was like, oh, Choose Your Own Adventure. Yes, yeah. I see. <laughs> right. When we were kids, you know, we'd go to those little, what do they call those? Like book fairs yeah. that they would have mm-hmm. at elementary school. Scholastic and book fairs. Books I would always get. Yeah, scholastic book fairs. I'm sure a lot of people. In the U.S. anyway, can relate mm-hmm. to those nostalgic for us book readers. So I would always grab those Goosebumps Choose Your Own Adventure books. And they were the ones that were like, you walk into this scary carnival and all this stuff's going on. And if you want to go on the merry-go-round, then go to page whatever. And if you don't, <laughs> then go to this other page. But other than that, I've never <laughs> read anything in second person point of view, but it works so well in this book. And the way that I always think about it, at least with my psychology influence here, is that right away we're dealing with trauma from Essun, mm-hmm. right? I mean, what could be more traumatic than coming home to find your uh, child dead and killed by your husband? And Such a violent, horrific way. Yeah. And she is just feeling depersonalized and disassociated. And there's something about that you that makes it feel like it's almost like you're floating above yourself. 
looking down and seeing you do all of mm. these things that aren't even under your own control. And that's exactly how Esun is feeling mm-hmm. right off the bat. She's like not even aware of herself. It's like that looking down on yourself depersonalized feeling. So it's a risk that N.K. Jemison took, Huge. especially it's her first. Yeah. Uh, so uh, first book in the series and it's, I don't know. It's amazing that she pulled it off. And she sticks with it the whole book too. I don't know how difficult it must have been to keep up writing like that and to keep track of like all the different grammatical things involved with writing in second person. Like reading it was just like an exercise of my brain or it's like a muscle you don't normally use. It's like, oh, this. And it also compounds her skills as an author because yes, the detachment is huge when you read things like you look over your beaten child you know who's just died like that's intense but then there's also moments where it's like you are a middle-aged woman you had two kids and and Mm. as the person reading that who i'm not a middle-aged woman i do not have kids you know all of those things you know this is a book that has to deal with oppression and a part of that is kind of like under like we're all human at the end of the empathizing. day empathizing right and what better way to empathize with the character than to make you the reader the character and it's like you are doing this you're doing that you're thinking about it and you when you read the reading experience when you go through something like that it actually does invoke some kind of empathy it switches the way your mind is processing the story and and it was a really entertaining read. Like you said, Dylan, there's no other books that I've read that is in second person besides the Choose Your Own Adventure Goosebumps novels. So this was um, a really interesting experience. And it can come off as gimmicky so easily, but Jemison nails it and bakes it into her characters and into her themes. And that's why I think it's, it's such a brilliant use and, and why it's deserving of a Hugo for sure definitely a huge part of why it's deserving of a Hugo and that's well said Charles I've never really thought about it through that lens of how it helps you produce empathy Mm -hmm. that you've you're getting the second person you do this you do that Mm -hmm. but it definitely now that I'm thinking about it it definitely works to do that good on you Charles thank you well you got the detachment part and that's why we make such a great pair If I do say so myself. (laughs) Here, welcome to the Friends Talking Fantasy Podcast, where we congratulate ourselves on being a great duo. We're just such good podcast hosts. I know, worthy of five stars on Spotify. (laughs) Yes, or Apple Podcasts. Apple Podcasts. Podcasts. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right, well, let's, let's get back to this. So... We're greeted with Esun. We right away see that she has been hiding her identity. She's married to this guy who just killed her son. And also what's interesting is he's never shown any history of violence. Mm -hmm. She mentions that where she's like, oh, if only the if only there was some warning about this, it might be like something I could have dealt with, but he's not, a, he's not a typically violent person. So you get this sense that if he was willing to go from like a guy who never hit his kids, never hit his wife or anything like that to all of a sudden beating their son to death, mm-hmm. then that is how serious this anti-origin sentiment goes. In and compound society. that with this, 
like it was because her child was an origin and she is an origin so there's yeah. the guilt that comes with that as well it's like you knowingly had kids that could put, had a 50% shot of being origin i think it is how it works out if i remember correctly and um you know you can't help but feel some guilt on that even though it's totally not your fault it's like of course your child is going to be like you but yeah. um because it's so rooted in a society that they're dangerous or subhuman or like or something like that that the husband is goes out of character to do something as horrible as kill his own child is is a strong way to start the story for sure quite the statement right and the only thing that really keeps asun going at all here is the fact that she can't find her daughter Mm -hmm. and she assumes and later figures out that he left the husband left with their daughter still alive and her daughter is also an origin so she's really trying to find her and get her out of the clutches of the same man who is willing to kill their son for sure but before she does she in her in her anger or her rage as to, to quote star wars she um she, she like causes a massive earthquake in her village in her town and she not only is she set out to you know rescue her daughter she's also kind of fleeing her town um in fear of being discovered and the earthquake origin destroys the water supply yes is a key part of that so basically and the way it's written is so well done i don't have it in front of me right now Mm -hmm. but it's along lines of uh like in that moment you doomed the entire town it's like (laughs) very simply written like it's like and that's the thing throughout this book as soon how many people does as soon kill it's like but you still root for her right which is pretty amazing and i think that it, that's yeah go ahead yeah go ahead you finish oh well i just think it's a testament to how nk jemison builds that empathy for uh character it's like it doesn't even feel like she's overly morally gray or that anyone would read this and not root for her right which is shocking considering how many things she does that result in the death of lots of people but just always feels justified i know it's never justified to kill people but it's still it feels that way when you're reading the book from her perspective right she didn't perspective she didn't intentionally shut off the water supply to the town she was acting out enraged that one of her children was killed and the other one was abducted and what's interesting, it's like a cyclical thing. And this is the nuanced complexity of oppression, right? Because um, people are afraid of orogeny because of the potential disasters they can cause. She caused the disaster through being an origin. And, but she only did that because someone killed her kid because they were origin. So it's like this this really complex cycle yeah it's very cyclical and this is just in the first like two chapters right so already there's so much happening here about um like you know i'm sure the townspeople are like wow origins are really dangerous it's a good thing that when we find them we either 
kill them as kids or send them off to a school where they're treated as subhuman. Otherwise, they'd be leveling cities all over the place. Uh, but really what triggered it was, you know, an act of basically, I guess you could call it some kind of oppression, racism towards an origin child. And the mother was in, in grief. It was not an intentional act to, I'm going to cut off this town's water supply. It was, um, they made it a point to say, through grief and, and, and through rage that she did that. So um, very good character yeah. work, very good theme development oh. right off the bat. It also should be noted that in the prologue, they mentioned that there's this giant earthquake approaching the town and Esun actually stops that earthquake from hitting the town before she dooms the town. Right. So it's almost right. this zero-sum thing that plays out. This, like, thankless stops thing, her. Yeah. yeah. And that's what's really interesting in part about uh, Orogeny is uh, that it allows the origin's power to actually save people. Right. And that's a huge part of what they do in the, the fulcrum, which is, like, the... I guess I was going to call it a magical academy, but that makes it sound way too nice. Like <laughs> it makes you think of things like the university and the King Killer Chronicle or something, which is, or Hogwarts, which seem like fun places to be. Right. It's like evil Hogwarts. Um, it's like a yeah. It's where, basically like a, almost like a prison school. <laughs> yeah, but but there are elements that feel very much like a normal school, but there's this just awful insidious i guess hegemony that's going on yeah and they have no rights and they're being trained to do very specific specific jobs and they're putting breeding programs and this that and the other so um right but anyway point being the fulcrum is trying to train them at least in theory to help people and save people and they send them out even on when they get older on these like missions where they get hired to help out towns and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So obviously there's an awareness within the society of the ways in which origins can be helpful, mm-hmm. but the fear creates the fear and the, uh, for lack of a better word, racism uh, that plays out here is producing a cycle like you said charles Mm -hmm. where they're not able to be those kind of people especially when they're outside of uh the fulcrum and any reasonable person would rebel against the fulcrum Mm -hmm. for the things that the fulcrum does to them so it's just there's no way for them to be what they can be in the society which is like they could be like superheroes they could but what's interesting is when um an origin is doing a good job no one can tell because just life is normal, la di da. It's like yeah. I just quelled an earthquake, but no one can like experience a quelled earthquake and be like, nice job. They're doing so much good for us. Because, like, well, nothing happens. And then all of a sudden they level a city and cut off our water supply, you know? So it's like right. the good deeds don't go noticed and then the, the bad deeds can be disastrous. So that's kind of another interesting part of the magic system. Something I also was realizing is how a lot of the the babies that we do see in younger people um, quell earthquakes naturally. It, it, it makes yeah. me wonder how much of this, like you have to go to the fulcrum and get trained or die is really, is really like a, 
accepted belief or is it something used by the fulcrum to oppress um origins you know because these babies were equivalent i mean they were very talented kids the ones that we know for a fact are doing that um but they were still able to naturally quell shakes without knowing anything um yeah so who knows how and much they need to go to school to learn that right we've run into a society where there are uh, the word that they use are I think feral is that that's the fulcrum right, know, right. making air quotes over here, <laughs> but it, there are people who are untrained origins and they have this whole society where they do, they are able to do things like stopping earthquakes, but they don't have the level of precision or skills as people like Alabaster and Esun, uh, then called Cyanite. Mm-hmm are able to show and there's even there's a character in who you know she ends up in this polyamorous relationship with mm-hmm. and he's he has some line along the lines of i like i almost wish i went to this fulcrum so i could see why you all come out so like pissed off but also so talented yeah. so there's i do remember this that ability line. Yeah, I wish I had that in front of me to actually not butcher the quote. But (laughs) point being, yes, there is a degree to which just naturally they're able to exhibit these skills. But the fulcrum, as evil as it is, does teach them how to do things that they would never have learned otherwise. Mm -hmm. That being said, theoretically, there could be a fulcrum that is more like regular Hogwarts and not like (laughs) evil Hogwarts where they still learn these skills, but it's not a horrible experience for them. Well said. And that kind of segues nicely into talking about Demaya because Demaya is a child that is discovered to be an origin and is then taken to the fulcrum later in life, right? They're a young girl, but, um, they're on that cusp of like you, you probably should be killed because you've been left to to your own devices for too long but you know i'm a you know i'm your guardian i'll you have to do what i say but i can protect you and and the dynamic between um damaya and i'm going to call him shafa 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 yeah, nailed it. is is one of my favorites in the whole book. These sections are fascinating. Yeah. This book, I knew this was going to be a book that I really appreciated during that moment where Shafa is trying to teach Demaya this lesson by breaking her hand for basically no reason, Mm -hmm. just to just to elicit obedience it's this horrifying moment and it's shocking Mm -hmm. but it's so intriguing and different because leading up to that moment shafa actually seemed like a pretty nice guy oh yeah and then it just out of nowhere he just breaks her hand it's like all these typical tropes that we see through typical fantasy novels gets subverted so well in this book. And Shafa seems like he's going to be this, I don't think quite Gandalf type guy, but he is this guy that kind of comes in with that mentor mentality, it seems, and is going to go take her off on 
something of an adventure and he's being nice and he's even he's really giving it to her parents who have been really crappy parents mm-hmm. and she's appreciating that he's being nice to her and then all of a sudden it's like this isn't Gandalf right this is not your typical mentor this is a guy who will break her hand for essentially no reason but a listing obedience Right. I mean, he uses it to say, like, you need to be in control, even under great duress and all of this, as I think part of it. Um, But it was totally unnecessary in that moment. I just think that she was starting to challenge him and he nipped it in the bud by with an over severe punishment. I think it's apparently standard practice Mm -hmm. that on their way to the fulcrum their hands just get broken because I don't think that's explicitly said at any point, but she does mention there was another guardian that does a similar thing to her or tries to in the uh, fulcrum. Remember when she's sneaking mm. around in the caves and there was that guardian. Do. That well, that was a different thing. Cause that guardian was like possessed. Yeah, but they the were time. doing the same thing, breaking her hand. Sure. I think though, the part that I, noted was when she's thinking about what Imin, that character I mentioned earlier, mm. who's the quote unquote feral origin, he she's thinking about what would he be like if he had actually been in the fulcrum. And she was like, oh it'd be so terrible because he's this huge charismatic personality and they're like, um and he'd have had his hand broken and then he would have probably been way more muted as a personality and it'd be so sad. So I think mm. I think it's just standard practice. I don't think that he did it for any reason, but this is what you do to, yeah, to make them obedient. And it's a word I'm using over and over again, but yeah. And that's that's well said. What I also think is interesting in these early moments between Demaya and, and Shafa is I don't think Shafa is necessarily deceitful or even necessarily dislikes Demaya. I think he actually in his own way does feel a sense of responsibility and love towards Demaya and that comes down to again to this idea of oppression. It's so firmly rooted in this society that Shafa can still say I love you, I care about you, do these things for me, I always have your best interest in heart and then break her hand and treat her differently than other people in the same breath. Like I don't think he's being deceitful. I don't think he is trying to beat her down necessarily. But he does say, never say no to me. I'm trying to protect you. And then Demaya's like, he's the only one paying attention to me. I love him. And it's that relationship dynamic that's so complex. And there's no like, it's hard to say there's no evil person when Shafa's breaking her hand. But he's doing what he does to every origin who needs to be able to control their powers like it's this firmly rooted systematic thing so i think shafa can break her hand and also still care about her in the same breath from the society that um nk jemison has built and that is what made my like what hooked me into that scene that moment so deeply it was like wow this is a complex relationship that you do not normally get in fantasy and and a hard thing to pull off when you're trying to talk about oppression without having someone just being an absolute evil person and thinking of the person they're oppressing as uh, a thing where this like in this case Shafa actually sees Demaya and has a relationship like a you know kind of like a parent like relationship with her 
uh, it's a bit more nuanced, and I love that. Great point, Charles. Mm-hmm. I totally agree that Shafa, in his own way, at least thinks he has love for Demaya, definitely feels an obligation to look out for her in the way that he thinks is incumbent upon him as a guardian. Mm-hmm. And I think the guardians have more privilege than do the origins in this, but they're part of this weird system of yeah. oppression as well. Mm-hmm. And they're stuck in they have chips their in their brains in all of this. Yeah. So you do get that sense where that is that scene that we referenced earlier when there's a guardian that just starts saying all these weird things to Demaya after they find her and this other character that will later be called Tonky, but I can't remember what her name was at that time. But they were sneaking around the fulcrum and they entered this area that you're not supposed to. And then that guardian just starts she saying those weird things. She's grabbing really hard. Banoff leadership, Yemenes, Tonky forename. B-I-N-O-F. Yeah. Dinoff, okay. So, anyway, the Guardian starts grabbing Demaya's arm and saying all these really weird things. And then Shafa comes in and just tears something out of, is it out of the neck, right? Mm-hmm. Right, it's like the, by the out spinal the cord there, yeah. Yeah, and he's like, oh, that's a shame. <laughs> Bummer that that happened. And another one walks in and, and like, oh, that, man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, and that's an that interesting is moment the kind because of thing then that he can says, to "You have to pass for me." Like he is, he wants Demaya to live and survive, and he goes, "I'm going to put you through something tough again, but you have to pass so that you can stay useful and alive." So, in a sense, he's looking out for her again, um, even though he's committing horrible acts of violence and to to even other guardians um so yeah it's a complex relationship he's a complex character um one of my favorites not just not because i think he's great personality wise but because he's very compelling thank you and the way he is written and the relationship that he has with demaya is is one of my favorite parts if not my favorite part about this book it's just a fascinating take on the mentor found family relationship for sure charles when i first read this book and i didn't know the twist i considered demaya to be my favorite character and i was most intrigued by that (laughs) storyline to start with and uh, hopefully that segs us into when she's about to take that first (laughs) and that's so funny because i remember being at this point like how did these characters ever converge i was like at some point (laughs) they got to come together right like that was my my brain (laughs) oh they come together and i was like oh (laughs) that's how they come together (laughs) (laughs) right so the twist totally got me as well Charles I did not see it coming because we're so used to these multiple point of view fantasy books we Mm -hmm. don't even question it and she does it twice by the way so it happens once and I'm like oh Demaya and Cyanide are the same person brilliant I wonder how Asun comes into it and it's like oh I think I figured it out at that point (laughs) I didn't I I, she got me twice with the same gag she got you twice (laughs) yeah (laughs) 
Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, exactly. shame on me. Shame that on me on for you, not getting the Asun one, but the Demaya one was good. <laughs> yeah. So I love that Demaya storyline. And then, yeah, what happens is right at that first ring test, she's allowed to choose her name. And what does she say? But Cyanide, mm-hmm. which we know is this other character that we should probably get into now. Well said. Let's talk about Cyanite. She is a is she a four ringer um, origin. Yes. Um, so she's kind of she's in, she's ambitious as well. I would say, and uh, she's very powerful. Um, and she's I'm going to say uh, partnered with assigned to Alabaster, who is a ten ringer, which is like. A big deal. He's the only one. He's the only one. Super powerful origin. Yeah. Um, and they're part of this breeding program, I guess. And there's breeders in this society where they're, they're trying to control the production of origin, essentially. And that is how the cyanite-alabaster relationship is first formed, first started. Right, and Alabaster, who we find out later is not even attracted to women, Mm -hmm. he is assigned all of these breeders to him who he's supposed to just reproduce with because he is a 10 ringer and he has these impressive genes that they just want to spread those around. So he's already had a bunch of kids who just immediately get taken away from him. Mm -hmm. It's actually extremely sad. It is sad. And as we, like, my favorite part of the Cyanite chapters is kind of learning more, like, watching the Alabaster character develop and watching their relationship develop. Because to me, what I like most about Alabaster is watching how his, how he uses his power to fight like oppression essentially in, in, in the ways that he can and it's interesting how he starts to bring up those discussions to cyanide and challenge cyanide's um firmly rooted beliefs that she developed from being raised in the fulcrum right it's programmed basically to believe a certain way that she mm-hmm. is a certain subclass and alabaster all he's doing is showing her node stations which are these horrific places where they just um lobotomize children so that they just become like batteries basically these node quelling organic powered vegetables unfortunately and um it it starts to wake her up and just through his own confidence and his willingness to push back against what society and the fulcrum are teaching and challenge it just in his own beliefs is one of the more powerful things I've ever seen from a character and not just like facing a Balrog and killing him and coming back. It's like this power of like, I refuse to believe that I refuse it. Even though every, if, if, even though it's what all of society says, like I am going to explore this knowing what I know about origin and what I can do. I'm going to explore these node stations. I'm going to push um, the boundaries of discovery and acceptance and belief of what origins can do. And I'm going to challenge, do I know that because I, it's true or because I was told to believe it? And he's constantly having those conversations and, and pushing and pushing. And it's a slow burn that I'm just 
uh, like th- that that really drives these chapters for me. Well said, Charles. Yeah, Alabaster is such a great character. He's mm-hmm. he's in this situation where he's the only Ten Ringer. They kind of leave him to his own devices for the most part, which is why he's able to figure all this stuff out on his own and really start to question things. And he's basically taking Sinai around and exposing her to all of these hard truths until she starts to see things much more the way that, that Alabaster does. I mean, before Alabaster starts taking her around her ambitions that you mentioned, Charles are basically to move up in the fulcrum. So she's still playing the game here. She's still involved in the system and she just wants to move up within the system. Mm -hmm. And we know that Alabaster wants to break the system. We especially learned that at the end of the (laughs) book where Alabaster is like, yeah, I caused this season and I want you to help. (laughs) (laughs) Help destroy it, not help (laughs) solve it. He's like, so he's uh, he's a break the wheel kind of guy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Break the wheel for sure. And, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting in relationship that develops because they start to form a partnership and form a relationship, which is, um, interesting because at first it starts out where it's like, oh, they're forced to be together and then they'll go and lo- and like realize they loved each other all along. And it, it kind of, it doesn't go there. It kind of settles into this like platonic, but still intimate compromise relationship where they raise a family together and enter this polyamorous relationship where they can find um love and compassion and coexist together and alabaster even says like this is all i need in in life this is it to like have a happy family and relationships and live a simple life like this is everything and to watch them get to that point where it's not like i love you with all my heart let's be together forever it's this more of like life is good right now like this is it like let's celebrate that it is the kind of happy ending that i enjoy because it's a it's more firmly rooted in reality i'd say and it it's not the romantic grandiose culmination ending but it is um it is a really different unique modern way to end a relationship and but of course the last couple chapters get uh, right. we do not get that happy ending. <laughs> right. we more get a happy middle right it was yeah. a happy, happy three medium, quarters yeah <laughs> yeah happy medium. yeah and it all for the cyanide chapters after she ends up on that island and she's in that polyamorous polyamorous relationship with inan and alabaster they have uh, this kid who's like a would-be prodigy mm-hmm. of uh, orogeny and then the crap hits the fan when these yeah these ships show up with guardians and freaking cannons which are <laughs> a high level of technology for the world that we're dealing with here and it's just calamity it is uh, guardians just like killing uh, i think Inan gets killed by a guardian right in front of Cyanide. Yeah. Like All of her, you know, like almost family. I remember there was like someone that got, they described getting like gutted basically. And this whole village is getting raided by guardians. And even Alabaster, he puts up a great fight, but he just runs out of 
energy for lack of a better way of describing what he's doing. Mm-hmm. He's and a stone eater who's just like feasting on him mm-hmm. ends up taking him away. He's got no arms and legs, I think, at this point. Mm-hmm. And Cyanite just has to watch him go. And but he's, he's like, like going slowly herself. and is like, save the child. Uh, you know, like very dramatic. Well, he's like, don't let Right, he's like, don't let them get the child. Right. Is the way that because he's again we have to remember it. the node stations and right. Alabaster does not want that for his another one of his children, the one he got to raise yeah. with his family. So exactly, yeah, it should be mentioned if we didn't already that the one at the horrifying node station scene was Alabaster's child. Mm-hmm. It's not confirmed, but the way that it, they it's implied it, that many of them are exactly because like, he's, you know, yeah. that's the reason they're using him as the like br- the br- the subject of breeding because he is so powerful and his children can naturally quell shakes that they want him to have as many babies as possible so they can basically um, make them brain dead, uh, comatose, and just hook them up to machines and let them just by instinct. Uh, quell nodes it's like the perfect kind of subservient human the kind you can just automate and just to serve one function and, and not have to worry about the rest of their humanity yeah and what ends up happening then is cyanite draws from the power of an obelisk which we haven't really mentioned the obelisks but they play a big role they're basically these uh, floating things that we learn that for some reason origins can draw power from, or anyway, really powerful origins can draw power from. Mm-hmm. It's only confirmed here that cyanide, I think, alabaster can do it too. So she ends up using that power to just destroy like everything around her, mm-hmm. including the ship that they're on. And uh, then she does kill guardians during that which is a really big deal Mm -hmm. for an origin to kill guardians guards are basically designed to be able to quell origins Mm -hmm. and yeah she ends up killing all those people but also killing her own child and uh, at the hands you know at the threat of who other than um what's his face shafa Shafa. thank you yeah shafa shafa makes his final appearance and this is much later in life than um when we see them with demaya right so now we're in cyanide's uh, pov and yeah there's shafa he's killing her family and is like hand me the child let's go like this this is a huge mess <laughs> uh, but um yeah she this time she fights back and when we remember the first time that Shafa heard her she was like she tolerated it because there was no one else in the world that paid attention to her and she loved him and so she went to the fulcrum and all this and all that and now she had a family she had children and she um said no to him and cursed at him and this was like this big breakthrough moment for her to resist and essentially rebel against the the guardians and against Shafa in particular, like why it had to be him. And it was a very powerful moment. And the fact that she smothered her own child is very shocking. Um, 
and intense, but it just compounds the drama of that moment. Fascinating. Yeah, she attributes it in part to what Alabaster said about not letting them get the child and mm-hmm. she decides that it's a fate worse than death if the kid ends up in one of those node stations it's hard to argue with that but it takes it takes some serious i don't know what to call conviction. it <laughs> conviction that's a good yeah. one yeah serious conviction to follow through by actually smothering her own child and that seems extremely well written too. Like the way after where it describes her floating in the water and it's like her child floats too, but floats face down. Mm-hmm. Something like that is just right. absolutely a killer. Just yeah. so hard to see. And you really get these moments. Part of what makes it hit so hard, just so devastating, is that you get these moments like you were describing earlier, Charles, where alabaster her and imin are happy together and just enjoying their lives and have a kid together and to see it end in such disaster it just hurts yeah it hurts and this was coming off of a chapter with essun right before where it's like oh there's it's like essun gets the band back together i think was the name of the chapter and it's like there's someone that wants to see you it's alabaster he's alive and that, that's when i made the connection uh, well we should connection at that yeah. point and that was right before all this stuff happened and then the book ends after all that stuff happens with an essence chapter yeah let's talk a little bit more about we we skipped over some essence stuff because we should at least mention that she meets up with hoa we mm. find out from this it, hoa appears to be just this almost seven or so year old child but he's kind of weird looking and then it's revealed that he's one of those stone eaters, which are this very mysterious uh, humanoid, at least most of the time in how they appear, mm. type of, uh, I don't know what the right word is, uh, peoples. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they're certainly not people, but you know what I'm saying. Uh, they look like a they're, person. Yeah, but they eat stones and apparently people sometimes. Mm. With their consent, it seems like. <laughs> like, Alabaster was kind of letting that happen. And we get Hoa actually, like, using his power to turn this beast into stone. So this is a big reveal moment. Mm-hmm. And he's just following Esun around. He keeps saying that he wants Esun to like him and all of that. Still very mysterious, by the end of this novel, what exactly the Stone Eaters are, what mm. Hoa's role is, but worth mentioning. And she also runs into Tonki, who's this, who is, uh, what was the, the name? Like, B-I-N-O-F, Binoff Leadership Humanus. Binoff, yeah. Who's basically from a really high family in this society, but wasn't really able to adhere to the rules in a lot of ways uh i think i'd also say that uh, she's transgender which does not uh, does not allow her to get the kind of marriage that she would need to Mm -hmm. to stay up in the high society and she's like a tinkerer now she's really invested in learning about technologies we also find out that she has been following Esun around 
I mean, yeah, basically there was, since they ran into each other. <laughs> when they ran into each other back in the fulcrum as, as children. When Banoof and yeah. Banoff and Demaya. And um, now here they are again all these years later. Um, and that's all these good Mr. X2 of why they didn't recognize, like, why um, some, like, why Essun wouldn't have recognized them. Because they, they, they changed, they re-identified, right? They're transgender, so they were... Um, they were described as a young girl in the Demaya chapters, and then then uh, still a woman. The Trizich Tonki is considered yeah. is a trend. She's a woman. Oh, a trans- Oh, you're right. I'm getting my I'm getting my characters mixed up. Yeah, she's a transgender yeah. woman, and then in the Demaya chapters, she was described as a little like a girl, right? Like a young girl. Yeah. yeah so that's kind so of. It- the deflection there yeah the reveals are kind of subtle mm-hmm. around that there's just this moment where Tonki presents as a woman and identifies as a woman and you also have Esun seeing her change and she just sees that she has a penis mm-hmm. so it's it's not it's not like super explicit like hey this is a transgender character no but it's but also a subtle way to be like why didn't Esun recognize this person that they went through a traumatic experience with as children as you know people grow up and well i think it's yeah well they grow up yeah so it's uh yeah. but she's a girl she presented as a girl and now she presents as a woman mm. so it's not like something right. uh, happened uh in between but i think that it's also that Tonki looks like a total mess by that point. Mm. Like the way that she's described is like she's in ragged clothing, like she's not taking care of herself. And when they first run into her, she is kind of scary looking to them. She's like, we should probably not be getting near this person because she looks, uh, they call it calmless, basically that she's not a part of a community. And you got to watch out for those people, especially at the start of a season. For sure, for sure. But, um, yeah, so that was quite the crew as part of Asun's journey there. <laughs> An interesting cast. Um, and, yeah, when when everything comes to a head and Asun meets Alabaster, um, and we get the reveal of what happened to Alabaster, he has not been having a good time since the last Cyanite chapter to now. <laughs> no, he has not, Charles. He's like mostly he... eaten and part stone. Yes. Yeah, he's been living among the stone eaters, mm-hmm. and he's definitely been partially eaten. And it's not entirely clear what his relationship with the stone eater that he's with is, but it uh, that stone eater has been eating part. <laughs> so, yeah, we get this cool reveal that Esun is in fact cyanite and we get this moment toward the this is the last moment of the book where she's meeting up with Alabaster again he reveals that he is the one that start started the season he wants Esun to help him destroy the world and he throws in this have you ever heard of something called a moon Uh, right which is interesting because i never when that happened when i first read it i never thought about the fact that there weren't moons right but 
Did that ever... Is that how it hit you too, Charles? Yeah. I mean, I didn't consider that this was a setting in which moons don't exist. Um, That was definitely a surprise. Um, There's these, you know, the obelisks are these floating things in the sky, right? Isn't that what they're described as? Yeah. Um, So it's like there's those and there's moons. There's a conspiracy going on. And this is definitely kicking off another adventure right it's in, into the next book but one of the things i wanted to mention in that scene alabaster's like i know what mm-hmm. you did to our child i understand it but i don't forgive you which mm-hmm. was a heavy blow uh and like you can what's comp what's messy about that and also so good is that you can feel for both Asun and Alabaster. It's like you can identify why that would be a devastating thing to hear as Asun, but then you also understand why Alabaster would say something like that. She did kill their kid. You know, that is something that she did. But she was also put in a very difficult situation. So the 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 complication of that moment and the fact that Alabaster did not let that go before inciting this incident that kicks off the next book sets a very interesting stage for book two. Definitely, Charles. And this this isn't something that they really get into, but I doubt that Essun would ever forgive herself for sure for doing that too. I mean, you see her the and I'm relationships sure. that she's taken on in her journeys. It kind of you kind of start to recontextualize her relationship with Hoa and and uh, mm-hmm. like all the other people in her life. Tonky. Tonky and yeah. Yeah. And if I'm looking at it from Alabaster's perspective, it's hard to blame him. You like you said, way, Charles. Yeah. 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 And Charles, you mentioned something that I'd never really thought about before mm-hmm. at the start of this episode, which is paralleling the idea of Esun having killed her own child and Alabaster's child as this quote-unquote mercy killing. And then at the way (laughs) beginning of the novel, we had the inciting incident, which is her husband doing what I would imagine he would call a mercy killing so that the child didn't have to live as a monster or whatever he would describe Mm -hmm. it as. So, because this is a guy who's never shown any violence in the past, who is widely considered to be a good person. I would never kill a baby, especially her own, until she does. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So, in some ways, I wonder if it hits even harder for her, because sometimes the things that most bother us in other people are the things that reflect our own for like better word flaws Mm -hmm. and i think it's even harder for her on top of just losing a child which in itself is arguably the worst thing that can ever happen to a person Mm -hmm. she also has to come face to face with the fact that this is something that she's done too right and it's it's interesting how like you like the inciting incident is something that she had committed uh, an action as not totally different circumstances but the results are the same and it it's challenging for sure and and it's the nuance in which nk jemison writes that she can do something like you know kill a child um 
kill two children and and have this thing where a society lobotomizes children to use as node quelling um you know organic <laughs> machines basically um and it's interesting to see the choice of like what is it about the fact that this inciting incident was a child that was killed and how Asun processed that versus the actions that Cyanite had committed in her past experiences, right? This is the same person. And she didn't once be like, oh, it reminds me of when I killed my kid, like back in the day, you know, it's that detachment that you were speaking about. Um, and how she may even be a part of this systematic violence too. Although you could argue she killed her own child to protect it from a horrible life. You can kind of at some way see that, but it's more complicated than that. And that's the stage that um, N.K. Jemison set for us at the end, this reveal of like, this is the same person. They've been, but it's the same person experienced both of these things. It's very... It, 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 I'm still thinking about it, you know. I still have it, it's one of the. It's why this is how you sweep the Hugos. You create these complicated literary scenes and scenarios that keep you digesting it and turning it in your head and and reflecting on it and theorizing on it. And there's so much meat on these bones from a thematic perspective that I still don't think I've come to a conclusion on how I feel about why there's two you know, murdered children from the same character at the start and end of this book. But um, it's it, it, it's that capital L literature for sure. There's a lot to digest about it. And, you know, it, you can only try so hard <laughs> on, the, on the show. Uh, but, I, 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 you know, I, I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> we do our best. <laughs> we do our best. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, what I think is this is not something that has clear answers. Yes. N.K. Jemison lives in the complexity and the nuance, and I'm sure she is very aware of all of these themes that are being explored, all of these different events and how they relate to each other. But I don't think she would ever say, uh, not that I know N.K. Jemison at all, but... <laughs> I do not expect that you would ever say that there are clear answers to any of these topics that we're discussing. And like you said, Charles, that's how you sweep the Hugos. You write something with this much nuance to it. And there's so much ability to discuss this. And I guess part of what I'm so impressed by in this book is the ability for it to be something that you could theoretically read as just a straightforward fantasy novel sure and it would be an amazing story but at the same time the real world analogy that plays out throughout this is just brings it to another level eh, on top of all the great characters world building and all that so it's an unbelievable book well said and yeah it's a modern classic for sure um you know nk jemison skyrocketing at the time this was written 2015 to one of the more influential modern fantasy authors for sure um and you can clearly see why very interesting book it's left me with still more to think about it and i appreciate it for that and the amount of skill that goes into writing that and then writing a whole character in second person and taking on themes like racism and 
and then killing babies and all this other stuff is really intense, you know. And she handled like polyamorous relationships, transgender characters. She takes all of it on, and it's mm-hmm. it's a very rewarding read. I don't know. It's something I haven't seen executed so masterfully all at once in one novel before. Right, and I do want to give give the respect to this decision to combine all of these multiple <laughs> point of views we kind of talked about it some more as oh did it get us like what a twist that kind of stuff but i've never seen anything like that before mm-hmm. or since and it's so interesting because it takes this character uh, and rather than these three characters that you have separate feelings about for all of them it takes your feelings for each of them and your empathy for each of them and what they've gone through and then just merges it into this one extremely compelling character. For sure. Now, Essun. So if you're someone like me who really gravitated toward Tamaya, if you're someone who gravitated more toward Cyanite, whoever it was, now those people are Essun. Yeah. So whatever you felt about what they're going through, Essun yeah. went through that too. Yeah. And that's how you can make a character that you still root for even after they've killed a child, yeah. which is and something that very about, can pull you know, these themes of not just oppression but about like systematic influences you see on a person, right? You think of Asun a specific way you think of cyanide a specific way because they're presented differently and the way you read them and experience them is different and then when you realize that they are all the same person it recontextualizes everything that you thought about all three of them because they're one person and that's kind of like how you take on things like racism and oppression it's like you're seeing these things separately and how do you rethink it in a way that you see you contextualize that this is one person's shared experience these were siloed characters that now have that shared experience that happened between them it's it's a like you could have all your characters be the same person and that's interesting enough but the fact that you not only deliver on that but make it earned and then also have it compound your the themes of your story all at once that's art that is masterwork and that was realizing all these characters it made me go back and think about how i perceived the character which is what she's trying to do to to like challenge racism and challenge oppression it's like go back and think about how you perceived a certain person or maybe a certain kind of person or a certain group of people and recontextualize it now that you have the whole story it, it, it's brilliant oh, it's, what more do you want me to say about it it's brilliant yeah well said charles <laughs> i was gonna say i don't know how i'm supposed to add anything to that i 100 percent agree and absolutely brilliant work by N.K. Jemison here and so pumped that we got to really dive into this I mean we're what like we're about hour 15 or so yeah. into this we could probably go on way way longer <laughs> discussing all the different themes and uh, interesting plot points great characters we could go on forever probably talking about that and maybe we'll get back to discussing stuff from this the good news is there's two more books (laughs) there's two more books yes so 
And for now, I think it's it's probably time to call. We're already kind of over our typical well episode length here. Well said, Dylan. I, I don't know about you, but I'm just about ready for that sweet, sweet outro music. Get that sweet, sweet outro music pumping, Charles. All right. Thank you all for listening to yet another very exciting episode of the Friends Talking Fantasy Podcast. If you like what you heard today, guys, check us out over on social media. Let us know what you thought. We're on there all the time, talking to people, replying to stuff, sharing things. And that's on Twitter at the FTF Podcast, the number one on the end, and on Instagram at the FTF Podcast. And uh, Dylan, if they like what they heard today and they're engaging with us on social media and they want to support the show even more, what can they do? Toss five stars to our podcast. Uh, Now there is the option to do that on Spotify. That's relatively new. Mm -hmm. And over half of our listenership, you're over there on Spotify. And it's so easy to just click right at the top of the Friends Talking Fantasy Podcast page. You'll see the star icon. Just click that. If you throw us five stars, we would be extremely grateful. grateful. It helps us out so much as a show. But just listening is more than enough. We really appreciate you Listening. I couldn't agree more, Dylan. Just by listening, you guys are awesome. Making it all the way to the end. Thank you all so, so much for listening to us talk about this book and all the other books we talked about. We greatly appreciate your listening and your support. And as always, guys, go forth and conquer, friends.